Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's a beautiful sunny Saturday morning in Madrid, June the 17th. I'm here at the European League Against Rheumatism conference, EULA, which is this year celebrating its 70th anniversary. But more importantly, it's an incredibly exciting time for rheumatology, which is bridging very much basic science through into clinical medicine. Before we hear from some of the experts on this special podcast, I want to have a quick word with my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Sargent, because if it wasn't for Jennifer, I don't think I'd be sitting here in sunbathing in sunny Madrid now. Jennifer, welcome. I've had a quick look at the editorial in our special rheumatology-themed issue, and the title is that it's a platinum era for rheumatology. What is meant by that? Well, it's a very exciting time to be doing rheumatology research and we thought that it was an appropriate time to put together a special issue showcasing some of the some of the research articles that we have in the field with the development of new biologics and new treatment strategies we've got a wonderful series in here it's a platinum age because it is the 70th anniversary of the organization that's ULAR which is where we are now and it's been a pretty lively meeting I'd say and 14,000 people are here pretty amazing I believe this is the world's largest rheumatology conference rheumatology a lot of people might not give that much thought to rheumatology but if if you take something like rheumatoid arthritis, and of course there are many other rheumatological diseases as well, rheumatoid arthritis, it affects something like 15% of people, 1-5% of people. It's a really important discipline, isn't it? It's a really, really important discipline, and it's a chronic and it's a long-term condition. Although we've made big strides in treating disease, we haven't really made enough in the way of prevention of disease, and I think that's where we're going next. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Now let's hear from some of our special guest interviewees for this special rheumatology podcast. I'm Ian McInnes. I'm the Muirhead Professor of Medicine in the University of Glasgow. In paper one of the Lancet series, one thing, if we could just focus on one thing I'm particularly interested in, it's this concept that as a result of the developments in therapeutics for rheumatoid arthritis in the past couple of decades, we're actually learning more about the underlying mechanisms. That's interesting, isn't it? Can you just expand on that? The absolutely fascinating thing about these new biological medicines is that not only have they transformed the way in which we treat people with rheumatoid arthritis, but they've allowed us an insight into parts of the immune system that are unequivocally involved in disease pathogenesis. And we know that when we give a highly exquisitely specific antibody to a patient and that patient's clinical state improves, we can say with a high degree of certainty that that pathway must be involved. Now, if you think about the other tools available to us in drug development, we have animal models of disease, we have ex vivo tissue studies, and we have a whole range of very basic methodologies. And from all of that, we make hypotheses, but the ultimate test is what happens when we put a specific targeted molecule into a patient. In this respect, we've learned that the cytokines TNF and IL-6 and possibly GMCSF are absolutely critically required for the synovial inflammatory response. We've learned that B cells and T cells cooperate with each other in the synovium and probably also in the systemic immune system, leading to the breach of tolerance and autoimmunity that underpins the disease. And putting all of that together, we can take these lessons from the past and use them to inform even better and more exciting therapies for the future. Hello, delighted to speak to you. My name is Gerd Wurmesse and I'm a professor of medicine at the University Hospital Charité in Berlin, Germany. And I'm also the current president of ULAR. Concerning paper two, um, this is novel treatment approaches for rheumatoid arthritis. Let's talk about this just for a few minutes. I mean, let's just kick off with the reality now. Here we are in 2017. What's the real expectation now for treatment for rheumatoid arthritis? It's changed such a lot, hasn't it? 
Absolutely, because when I started rheumatology, which is now um, uh, quite a few decades actually ago, because I did all my medical thesis already in this field, it was for me it was very difficult to enter the uh, outpatient clinic because patients were lining up in wheelchairs, they came on crutches. At that time, rheumatoid, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, is one example, but there are many others. It was a, an absolutely uh, terrible disease leading to invalidity very soon. A lot of pain could not be controlled, the, the joints were destroyed. And this has changed completely nowadays uh, due to the very, very good treatment armamentarium that we have. The, the, the problem and the issue now uh, is uh, that we should make this armamentarium available to the patients affected as early as possible. This is a really important concept. Identify the disease as early as possible and treat it as early as possible. And therefore, ULAR has generated a campaign stating don't delay, connect today. We launched this here in Madrid at the Atocha station, alerting the public that it is very necessary to really watch your symptoms should you be affected and seek immediate attention. Despite the advancements that have been made, there still remain some very real challenges, don't there? Some parts of the patient population not responding to treatment. Well, how do you summarize the biggest challenges that we face today? Uh, well, actually, there are two major challenges. First of all is access to immediate treatment because uh, there are long waiting lists in many countries, including Germany as well. Sometimes a patient has to wait for three to six months until they get the medical attention by the appropriate specialist. And on the other hand, there are also resistant cases of rheumatoid arthritis uh, where despite all modern treatment, we really do not reach our goal. And our goal currently is a complete remission, especially in the early stages when there is no or little damage. So we have really high-reaching goals, which means complete remission, free of any symptoms, ideally. And what about the treatment approach? Because traditionally it was conservative, wasn't it? It was like the pyramid, starting off with maybe physical therapy and then use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, then moving up the pyramid into, you know, into sort of more concentrated treatment. But the feeling now, though, is that actually that pyramid, you can turn it upside down. You want to detect early and go in with intensive therapy. Is that right? Absolutely. I still remember the old days of the pyramid approach because people were afraid of side effects uh, at that time. And, of course, we didn't have potent drugs available at that time. So really one started with, as you mentioned, bed rest even, which mm. we nowadays don't want anymore and in fact we want to have the patients to be the patients very active to do a lot of physical therapy and the non-steroidals because aspirin that's, that's all we had besides let's say gold and glucocorticoids and now we have a really an impressive armamentarium especially in rheumatoid arthritis to treat the patients uh, early with uh, very potent drugs and also the very important strategies that we have. So it's not only the drugs themselves, but also the strategies that we use. And in terms of the approaches, obviously most successfully targeting TNF and interleukin-6, really important. But also, I was at a session yesterday, and it was talking about tofacitinib, and that's a, that's a, a, a JAK inhibitor, isn't it? The oral therapy paper that Lancet's just published as well. This looks like a promising new area as well for JAK. Absolutely, and I must confess that initially I was a non-believer in these drugs because I was uh, deeply involved in the development of biologics. The biologics have, have the uh, huge advantage that they only target one molecule, nothing else. So they are very specific, while the JAK inhibitors uh, 
they uh, inhibit several enzymes, sort of systems, and inhibit the uh, signal tr transduction of several um, cytokines. But it turns out uh, that um, the safety profile is uh, not really very different from the biologics. This is the very good news. And the even better news is that they are very potent drugs, even though they are given orally. They could really, I think we might enter a new era that many approaches that use uh, biologics which need to be injected and which are great drugs might uh, be replaced in some instances by uh, the new oral drugs that patients obviously prefer normally because it's so much easier to take them. Absolutely. Let's now just hear a little bit from Professor Roy Fleischmann, who is presenting the findings of the oral study that Lancet just published June the 16th. My name is Professor Roy Fleischmann. I am at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Early in the development program, it was uh, suggested that the monotherapy of tofacitinib is effective. And the question was, is it as effective as in combination with methotrexate or not? And then the second question, because of the phase three program with the comparison trial to adalimumab, was actually to do a head-to-head -head trial properly powered to see whether or not tofacitinib plus methotrexate is non-inferior to adalimumab plus methotrexate. In other words, are they pretty much the same? And how does the monotherapy of tofacitinib compare to the combination of tofacitinib plus methotrexate as well as adalimumab plus methotrexate? So that's the reason for oral strategy. It was a three-arm, head-to-head, non-inferiority trial comparing tofacitinib monotherapy to tofacitinib plus methotrexate, tofacitinib monotherapy to adalimumab plus methotrexate, and tofacitinib plus methotrexate to adalimumab plus methotrexate. So we tried to answer all of those questions. It was shown that adalimumab plus methotrexate is non-inferior to tofacitinib plus methotrexate, so you can assume that they are very comparable. You can treat with one and treat with the other. The monotherapy arm did not achieve non-inferiority, but it also wasn't inferior. When you do these models, you can say that they're non-inferior, they're inferior, or if they are non-inferior, you can then test with superiority. Neither was superior, but there was an indeterminate where they're neither non-inferior or inferior, and that's where the monotherapy wound up. The conclusion from the trial would be that if you have a patient who has active disease in spite of methotrexate, one can add tofacitinib 5 milligrams or adalimumab 50 milligrams every other week, presumably any other biologic, but of course we only looked at one of this trial, and you would expect in a group of patients similar numbers of patients to respond. And if you use the monotherapy, you'd expect slightly less patients to respond. It was not inferior, but it wasn't non-inferior. This actually corroborates what I've done in practice since 2012, since the drug was approved in the United States, which is I add tofacinib to methotrexate, methotrexate incomplete responders. And in those patients who have a very good response, which many do, I then will try to, to taper or discontinue the methotrexate. And I can achieve that in about two-thirds of patients. And why are these results so important in the clinical setting? So it's important for a number of reasons. If you have a methotrexate incomplete responder and you want to add therapy, the question is what do you add to what class of medication do you add? This shows that you're going to add a jack kinase, an oral jack kinase inhibitor such as tofacitinib to that patient 
or you can add a biologic. It gives a patient a choice between taking an oral medication or a subcutaneous medication. Now, clearly, economics are going to be part of this. What type of access does the patient have to either drug? What is the payer going to pay for? But as far as the patient is concerned, the patient now has more options. That's one part. And it's an important part because this has been shown to be even. The second part, and clinically very important to practitioners, is we know that tofacinib works as monotherapy, and the question is, is whether or not you would start with monotherapy in a patient who can tolerate methotrexate, or is it more advantageous in group of patients to add the tofacinib? And this study does answer that question. It is more advantageous to add methotrexate and then try to go to monotherapy rather than starting off with monotherapy. Those are the two key important parts of this trial. A couple of final thoughts, uh, Gerd, because we must let you go. You're about to do your big symposium, which I'm very much looking forward to listening to. Biosimilars, this is an exciting area too, isn't it? And again, in the Lancet Rheumatology issue dated uh, June the 10th, the Norswich study trial, that's uh, coming out of Norway, very interesting, looking at the potential of these biosimilars. And that's got to be so important in terms of access and affordability as well, hasn't it? Absolutely, because uh, I was involved in the generation of monoclonal antibodies myself. Actually, I generated hundreds of these reagents because it's a very, very powerful technology. I would have never dreamed that we would have now basically kilograms of these drugs and we have now highly defined means of producing them and putting them eventually into the syringe so that they are very safe. We know all the processes and of course if you uh, follow all these uh, uh, safety lines uh, producing monoclonal antibodies and then other biologics, they are really drugs that are basically the same. They're not exactly the same because they're complicated molecules, but basically the same molecules as, as the original molecule. This is truly an advancement because there is now some competition, obviously, between several companies. We already witnessed that the price of the monoclonal antibodies and, and other drugs have gone down. and. As a, for a president of EULAR, this is, of course, particularly important because we don't only uh, serve the highly developed countries where the affordability is not, a, not frequently, luckily, not a major issue, but also countries where it's very difficult to get access to these new drugs. And if they are less expensive there, it simply means more patients will get it. And final thoughts conclusions on, on where we are, treatment approaches now and, and looking to the future. Optimistic or are you still frustrated by some of the difficulties that we're facing for, for treating the entire patient population here in rheumatoid arthritis? No, I'm, I'm, I must say I'm really extremely optimistic because I always keep telling my, my students that uh, rheumatology is the most successful discipline of the last decades. Some people might say, well, it's cardiology, oncology, or so on, but I think there is quite a bit of truth to what I, what I tell my students because we have now so terrific new means to treat our patients early and uh, to avoid damage. So I'm very optimistic. There are two issues that we mentioned, early access and resistant patients, but I think we already are designing the means also to tackle these problems. The one is... Uh, with a campaign and the other one is uh, looking yet into another uh, mechanisms of disease that we can tackle and finally of course our, our ultimate goal is the complete drug-free cure of the patients. Here, here, Professor Burmester, it's been wonderful meeting you. Thank you very much. Have a great symposium. Thanks for talking to The Lancet. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks a lot.